I mean, I'll Google that in the break. Have you consumed any interesting media this week? Uh, so the Obi One finale aired mm-hmm. yesterday. It was good. Good. Hesitant. Uh, I, <laughs> it's very difficult to talk about without spoiling it. Oh, okay, okay. But it suffers slightly from because of the fact it's a prequel. So timeline wise, it's set between episode three and episode four. Yeah. Uh, so between Anakin, like getting his legs cut off and becoming Darth Vader and then spoiler no I'm joking <laughs> spoilers for movies that came out like 20 years ago yeah, yeah. uh and Even I've seen four that one. when like Obi-Wan meets Luke and all of that stuff mm-hmm. uh well, not meets Luke they know each other already so it's very difficult Starting for any to sound of the... like the Somerset Skywalkers <laughs> ah yes do you know the Skywalkers yes I'm gonna hide this guy's child back <laughs> I'm going to hide this guy's child from him by giving the child to his family so he's got the same fucking surname. Mm-hmm. That seems that right. Works. That works. Mm-hmm. Anyway, no, so um, so it just suffers a bit from the fact that like none of the peril feels that perilous, which right. I think they, they kind of tried to overcompensate by killing a character that was created for this show, and it was like, well, that shit, because that was like a really avoidable death, but then you've had like 50 million other characters survive getting stabbed in the gut with a lightsaber. Right. Even though Qui-Gon Jinn died from getting stabbed in the gut with a lightsaber way back in The Phantom Menace. True. But, but of course, some people die from just falling over on the curb. Well, true. And if that were universally true, mm. I would be dead so many times over. But no, overall it was a good show and it hit a cameo and a meme moment in the last episode that it had earned. Like if it had okay. done either of those in the first episode, that would have felt really cringy, but... It hit them with exactly the right moment to pull good. all the nostalgia strings and what have you. Good. So it's mostly good. Glad to hear it. I've been considering re-listening to the Magnus Archives. I am like super behind on all the podcasts I listen to because I kind of am still playing catch up from going to Vegas, I guess. Uh, but the Magnus what Archives. What an administrative nightmare. <laughs> it is weirdly stressful. <laughs> yeah, you need to stop having activities, I think, because... Well, Sorry, I keep are... seeing your name brackets miscreant in the corner of the screen. That's making me very happy. <laughs> <laughs> but I'm still like very, very slowly working my way through the Magnus Archives. It is weirdly good for falling asleep to. Oh. Like, I know it's full of horror, but he's got a really soothing voice. He does have a soothing voice, but you will be missing in things. Well, yeah, no, I keep having to... This is why it's taking me a long time to work through I it, see. because I have to listen I to every see. episode like three times. Yeah, got you, got you. <laughs> it's maybe not the most logical way to consume content. It's a cosmic horror. Logic is not a part of it. Are you talking about the Magnus Archives or my attempt at a podcast listening schedule? Both. There is a sense of cosmic horror. <laughs> uh, um, um, um... I feel like there was something I wanted to talk about during this soft open, and it's just... Uh, so I saw on Twitter, someone has written a master's thesis about representation of queer characters in mm-hmm. Discworld, uh, which I will link to in the show notes. I haven't read the whole thing yet because it's very big and the text is very small and there's no way to comfortably zoom in on it on a phone. Uh, is it a PDF? Yeah, basically. Do you want me to print it for you? No, it's very okay. big. <laughs> And then I'll just have a PDF of someone's master's thesis in my house. Like, no, I will. I, I am going to read it. I'm looking forward to it. I'm just reading it very piecemeal. Mm-hmm. You, nice can send pe- you can send PDF to your Kindle, by the way. Oh, yeah, I keep forgetting that. Anyway, yeah. 
but mm. uh, I'll link to it in the show notes. I'm looking forward to having a lot of thoughts and opinions and probably putting it somewhere in my podcast reference pile. That's a good point. I'm looking at this list of talking points today and I don't see anything on gender. Where's the uh, premise a, gender? It's, uh, it's under cheery. Oh, okay, cool. <laughs> I promise to talk about gender front scene. It's okay. You have to. I stopped highlighting the relevant bits because I thought you had it. <laughs> oh my God. Sorry, that just reminds me. I literally just saw the funniest headline on Twitter and I think I already quote tweeted it. Um, oh, now you don't want to load. Screw you. Right, I'll find it. They, them, summer, a new far left extremist plot to undermine American democracy. Subheadline experts warned that the deodipionized, I don't know what that word means, theys are a far greater threat than Islamic terrorists. Mm -hmm. Oh, uh, is, this, is this satire? Or? I don't know. Like, I well, it, no, it's from Fox News. Oh. So it's satire as much as I guess anything is satire. Cosmic horror. Yeah. yeah. But so it's officially hot them summer. Fuck hot girl summer. Um, well, it's, this is a screenshot, so I can't go further down that rabbit hole, and I'm thankful for that. Yeah, no, I don't actually <laughs> want to read a Fox News article. I'm just embracing the fact that I'm apparently a threat to American democracy. So they slash them is a movie, and it's going to be about that, that article. Oh, right. It's a horror flick starring Kevin Bacon. Oh, yeah, no, conversion I camp. So it'll be some weird psychological term. I remember seeing the trailer for the film, and it actually looked quite fun. Like it looked like campy horror, not mm. like horror horror. Yeah. But I'm still taking they, them, summer to mean that it's hot them summer. Oh, for sure. Yeah. I think that's necessary. Um, I, I'm trying to think of anything else vaguely Pratchett or. Well, we've got a pretty long podcast ahead of us and last week's soft open was obnoxiously long, so we could just plow on. Do you want to make a podcast? Yeah, let's make a podcast. Oh, wait, I need to ask you oh. something first. Sorry. Uh, do you want some Twinkies for the room? I will break up with you. <laughs> okay. Am I the asshole? The... No, I'm not. I know this. I don't need to ask credit. <laughs> that was the last time, I promise. <laughs> I do want some Pringles. That's the thing, Joanna. That's what really like adds salt to the wound. I do want some Twingies for the room, and I don't think you're going to give me any. <laughs> I could really eat a Pringle right now. Yeah. By a Pringle, I mean an entire tube in under five oh. minutes without really noticing that I've done it. Do you know what? I've got a slightly stale custard donut in the fridge, which I'm going to eat while I make coffee, so... Right, I'll see you in a minute. Hello and welcome to The Tree Shall Make You Fret, a podcast in which we are reading and recapping every book from Terry Pratchett's Discworld series, one at a time in chronological order. I'm Joanna Hagen. And I'm Francine Carroll. And this is part three of our discussion of The Fifth Elephant. The, the climax. The climax, the dramatic conclusion. The third act. The denouement. Where we look at... Uh, note on spoilers, however, before we crack on, we are a spoiler light podcast. Obviously, very heavy spoilers for the book, The Fifth Elephant. We will be announcing who done it. Mm. Uh, but we will avoid spoiling any major future events in the Discworld series. And we're saving any and all discussion of the final Discworld novel, The Shepherd's Crown, until we get there. So you, dear listener, can come on the journey with us. Running in your underpants through deep snow. Yep. I know this is a slight repeat on the last one, but I feel it's important to mention the underpants. It is very important to we all take a moment to picture sam vines and his underpants i can't joe i don't i don't have the emotional capacity to develop a full crush on another fictional character ever since john sims um i thought you already fancied vines 
it's kind of a platonic love. Oh no, I'm just into it. Right. But like, I mean, I guess now, I'm getting also... old enough now that it could turn into more. But yeah. as I say, I've got limited emotional depth. Well, I'm like also quite deeply in love with Lady Sybil, so like uh, it would be like a thruple thing. Oh no, no, you've made it bad. <laughs> Just with the, I hate the word thruple. I can't. I'm adding it to the list. I don't understand why it's used when trio is, is a perfectly yeah, yeah, yeah. good word that it <laughs> exists. But is it me being bigoted against polyamory if I if I ban thruple? Considering no one takes our band word list particularly seriously, yeah. <laughs> as far as I know, the word leatherus is still out in the world. I know, but I don't, I don't want you to feel persecuted. We would like to reassure our listeners that we are totally okay with polyamory, just that word's kind of weird. Yeah. <laughs> just, say, just say trio, it's fine. Yeah. Or triad, triad's a good one. Triad's pretty good. Triad has like mafia vibes though, right? Yeah. Anyway, we're staying on track this week, Francine. Okay. Listeners will never know how off-piste we went last week. Some will. <laughs> Patreon listeners got most of it. I really didn't do a lot to the video. I, I don't usually. Sometimes if we've gone particularly egregiously off track, I will save the video watchers from us, but not this time. <laughs> Amazing. That was a half uh, hour difference in the episode. I'm like, not surprised. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> Listeners, join our Patreon if you want to hear us talk a <laughs> lot of it, extra bollocks. It is good. <laughs> it's not Discworld related, but it does exist in the world. <laughs> uh, right, follow up. Uh, mm. We had a brief moment of speculation about whether or not BCBs had been explained mm. and whether they got explained in this section. And I just wanted to clarify that on page 408, when Sybil is negotiating uh, fat treaties with the Low King, mm. She mentions BCBs and clarifies to Vimes that that means uh, burnt crunchy bits, in this right. case mostly unbelievably huge and ancient animals deep fried. <laughs> As opposed to bits of detached rind. <laughs> so I suppose this is the equivalent of preserving them in amber. Yeah, yeah. Uh, the uh, the peat bogs and things, yeah. <laughs> Poor deep fried mammoth. That's that's Scottish too, I can imagine. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Uh, did you have anything to follow up on? Uh, no, I already corrected my schoon mispronunciation. So, um, oh, I think we had a couple comments actually on Reddit. Hold on. Where are we? Yes. Batsuit Clad said that uh, their favorite reference to the previous books and how Vimes has improved is his closing his eyes as he lit cigar because back in Men at Arms, Dr. Creases pointed out to him about night vision when they, when they were in the sewer near the end. Ah. So they say it's just a subtle thing. They like how Vimes continues to learn. That's a clever little detail, and I totally missed that. Thank you, Batsuit Clad. Yeah. I believe Batsuit Clad is also the person who, as uh, present, because they caught up fully to the podcast, made us a little playlist of uh, Terry Pratchett's appearance on Desert Island Discs, which is in the Reddit. Oh, sweet, sweet. Um, yeah, now I've bookmarked that. Good. Thank you. And, oh, yes, and Angels... Sorry. Angels on Fire? Angels on Angels Five. Angels on Five. It says, ah. yeah, that's I was about to say fire as well. Um, <laughs> um, with one of the users that I misread completely, um, re pronunciation, and they have linked to somewhere where an actual Scottish person says that word. So I will link to that in the show notes in case I'm still doing it a bit wrong. Uh, I think Pete on our Patreon as well confirmed the, uh, the northern pronunciation, which is a bit more like skern. Okay. Which- well, you can tell that my northern accent does not come out willingly, but only when I've had a certain amount to drink. Certain amount to drink, and if possible, a phone call with your uncle. 
Yes. Yeah. <laughs> Which also, my uncle doesn't listen to this podcast, but shout out to him because he got me a really cool first edition of Small Gods for my birthday. Oh, yeah, I know. It is very cool. Yeah. That was printed in various Nedmonds. Or near. We are the best place. We are the best place. Things, more things should be printed here. I think the one you got me was printed in Barry. Does that mean it's a proper first edition? Yes. Ah. I think that means it, it's also a first impression. Ooh. I'm not going to go deep into the difference because I don't know it well enough. I don't collect rare books for the sake of trying to sell them on and stuff. So Yeah, yeah, exactly. Cool. Anyway, anyway. Uh, in that case, <laughs> Francine, would you like to tell us what happened previously on The Fifth Elephant? Certainly. Bandits strike and Morpork's ambassadorial coaches en route to Bjonk. Luckily, the ambassador is a seasoned street fighter and is Clark a ruthless killer. The retinue makes it to the embassy after some aggressive bureaucracy, but Vimes' diplomatic duties start to overlap with his calling as a cop as he visits the low king-to-be. The schoon of Stoon has been stolen, even if the high-up, low-down dwarves are reluctant to admit it. Back above ground, Vimes visits a teetotal vampire and a pack of well-bred werewolves before returning to a concussed Igor in a spy room full of fat secrets. Later, in a vast cavern dazzling with candlelight, Sybil hobnobs while Vimes is shewn where the schoon should be. He returns to the reception just in time to rugby tackle royalty as detritus catches a deadly ball of falling wax and fire. And then, darkness. Also, Inigo died, and I forgot to put that in there. What a dramatic ending, completely ruined. <laughs> Beautiful. Uh, I'm going to apologise for the summary now. I've been working really hard over the last like couple of months to edit these down as much as possible. Mm-hmm. You've done very well. Yeah, not this week. Okay, so fine. much fucking happens in this section, <laughs> and I wanted well, to keep everything in. That was much longer than my usual previously ons, and that was only the middle section. So I'm, I understand. Yeah. This went over a page and that was with me fiddling with the margins. Right, anyway, I'm going to so, beat myself. <laughs> in this section, Vimes wakes in darkness, clad only in a shirt and breeches, in a diminutive cell with nothing but a few matches and a hidden weapon to his name. Dee visits and explains that with Inigo's body found in the mechanisms of the fallen chandelier, Vimes and indeed Ank Morpork have fallen under suspicion. Cherry and Detritus are under house arrest at the embassy and Dee hints that Vimes has a hidden friend. Vimes throws away his shot, fights his way out and finds himself falling as he attempts to climb out. With a little ele- with a little aerial assistance from Lady Margalotta, he finds himself in the frozen forest. After a rough night, he warms up in a hot spring, but a naked wolf gang arrives to mock his civilised drawers and admits to smuggling a false scone in, <laughs> in on the Ankh-Morpork <laughs> coaches. Civilised drawers. <laughs> no, My new fair. fashion brand. <laughs> The hunt begins, and a scantily clad Vimes hurries off with a head start. Meanwhile, in the city, Nobby mans the picket lines, and Veterinari enjoys the quiet life as both the police and the populace realise that Vimes might just go spare. Three sisters look out over the cherry orchard as Angra and her wolf pack realise the game is afoot, while Vimes makes it to the sisters' barn and receives a sharp axe and much-needed pair of trousers. He sets a trap and leaves a few werewolves singed as he gets in a boat and sets off down the river, only to go over the falls as death observes uncertainly. Trapped in a tree, Vimes and Wolfgang exchange words as Wolf admits to killing Sleeps and Skimmer. As the sun sets and Vimes fights his way out of the tree, Carrot intercedes. The wolves chase off the werewolves and Angua catches up the commander as they warm up by the fire. They start sledding back to the embassy, pausing only to grab what they can from the Klax Tower. 
Back in the city, Colin crunches sugar cubes alone, while on the sled, Vimes realises there is no stolen scone. They sneak back into the embassy, and Tantony's unhappy, but it's ain't more pork soil he's standing on, and Vimes sees red when he hears Sybils with Baroness Seraphine. At Wolf Hall, Sybil breaks out when she starts hearing shouts, and Detritus blows the bloody doors off and then some as Angua stands up to her mother. A fight breaks out on the bridge as Tantony takes a wolf to the chest, Carrot takes a beating from Wolfgang, Gavin leaps into the fray, and Gaspode goes for the soft spot, sending all three over and into the river. Fuck me, that was difficult to summarise. Detritus, well. thank you. As Detritus gets Tantony and Carrot to the closest Igor, and Vimes claims the counterfeit's gone from Seraphine, Gaspode meets death but lives and sends out the howl for the dearly departed Gavin. Lady Margolotta attends a meeting as Vimes and his ragtag bunch of more porky and misfits head to the embassy, foes gone in tow. He's sent a clax out and Sybil sings and sets a precedent before they're taken to the Low King. Reese is sure the scone's the real thing, and Albrecht agrees as Dee's revealed to be a feminine traitor. Vimes insists that the scones are fake and that the real one was smashed, but the axe of Theseus provides a handy explanation. Sybil negotiates a greasy deal, and Vimes finally sleeps. The next day, as they prepare to pack, Vimes can't shake a suspicion about Wolfgang. As they get ready for the coronation, Sybil makes an announcement just before the somewhat damaged werewolf arrives. The embassy Igor takes a nasty hit and Angua gets her claws out before Vimes and Tantony attempt an explosive arrest that takes Wolfgang down for good. Lady Margolotta arrives one last chat before Vimes heads to the coronation and Carrot and Angua get some clarity and closure. Vimes sees the king, Sybil gets a silver ring... Cherry and Detritus get gold handshakes and a revelation, and the king gives Vimes an eternal axe. In the morning, a young Igor arrives to join the watch, and Sam and Sybil elect to take the long way home. Finally, Gaspode gets picked up, Carrot and Angua make it back to the city, just in time to shout Colin back into himself. Yay! Too much happened. How dare they? It was good there, right? Action packed. Yeah. Oh no, I've, I fucking love this book so much, and the last third of it is really why. The moment when you get to ostensibly the end of a plot and there's still 50 pages, you're like, oh, what else is going to happen? <laughs> dun, dun, dun. Uh, helicopter and loincloth watch. Uh, Lady Margolotta is this week's helicopter because she is literally it, flying. That's more, better than usual, yeah. And, and I did rescue the, him with the aerial assistance thing. The honour of the loincloth this week, of course, goes to the gloomy and purposeless trousers of Uncle Vanya, which I'm now going to pop on a mantelpiece and we might come back to them in Act 3. <laughs> It's just like a really, really obvious pair of trousers. Oh, Chekhov's uh, gone. Where? Sorry. Oh, there you go. Should we do quotes? Yes. It started badly, hesitantly, but it picked up and got stronger, richer. And when he paused for breath, the howl went on and on, passing from throat to throat across the forest. The sound wrapped him as he slid off the log and struggled on towards higher ground. It lifted him over the deeper snow. It wound around the trees, a plaiting of many voices becoming something with a life of its own. He remembered thinking, maybe it'll even get as far as Aunt Morpork. Maybe it'll get much further than that. Mm. Now that was one of two bits that made me cry. I was, I assumed when I read all the Gavin death stuff that you were probably going to have a little tear shed moment. Just that one. And the other one's my quote. Uh, <laughs> so it's when Angua... And Carrot are talking after they've just buried Gavin, actually. And Angra says, in, in reference to what if she went all mental like Wolfgang? Mm -hmm. Well, if it happened, if it did, would you do what Vimes did? Carrot, would it be you who picked up a weapon and came after me? I know you won't lie. I've got to know. Would it be you? A little snow slid down from the trees. The wolves watched. 
Carrot looked up for a moment at the grey sky and then nodded. Yes, she sighed. Promise? I love that moment so much. It makes me feel some sort of way. Just the idea of like wanting it to be the person you loved who, who stops takes you. you out. Yeah. Yeah. I try not to constantly reference Buffy on the podcast, but it very much reminds me of the end of season two of Buffy where she's got to stab Angel just as he gets his soul back. Oh. That's a very sad moment. And then she runs away in her dungarees of sadness. <laughs> dungarees of sadness. We'll put them next to the gloomy trousers of Uncle Vanya in the most depressing wardrobe in this multiverse. Uh, <laughs> on a happier note then. Oh, yes, yes. Do we have some honourable mentions, I think? Uh, we have some honourable mentions uh, to some of the best puns we've had so far in the Discworld. Mm-hmm. Uh, there is a saying, it won't get better if you pick it. You know it's a bad pun. If I highlight it in my ebook and send a screenshot to Duana going boo, which I think has only happened two or three times during the whole podcast. <laughs> but we have to mention it here. Oh, uh, yes. also, it's good. so bad, it's definitely good. The reference to Sybil's sharp non secretaires. I didn't pick secretaires. up on that. Very good. Yeah. <laughs> I'm never sure how to say secretaire at the best of time. And as I know, it's a secretaire pun. They yes. are just non <laughs> secretaires will always be secretaires to me now. That's good. I like that. And what was the battered to death one? Oh, it's um, Vimes is thinking about all of the prehistoric animals that fell into uh-huh. the, fell the, into the whole patch. He's like, ha, battered to death. It's when he's all like hysterical. You know. yeah, that he's is the kind day. of pun you come up with when you are sleep deprived and hysterical. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And you had a simile mention. Oh, yes. Um, when they're talking about like the various resources in the area. Vimes is thinking about the dull ingredients in the pudding of civilization, which I feel like is a fitting end course to our previously uh, talked about soup of the afternoon and tincture of the night. And the pudding of civilization, perfect. Mm. So what's the cheese course going to be? <laughs> cosmic Existentialism. Horror. Oh, yeah. cosmic horror, yeah. <laughs> the cheese course of cosmic. I now want to throw a cosmic horror themed cheese party. The cheese of cosmic horror on the water cracker of existentialism. Perfect. All right, let's go on to characters. Yeah, I think we're better. Uh, so I thought we'd start with Vimes, but I actually I I could literally do like a full two hour episode just on Vimes in this third of the book. So I yeah. saved quite a lot of the, his stuff about his anger for later. I, I made one note that I'm pretty sure wouldn't be in your later thing which is that I like that he's made waking up confused into a personality. Yeah. That happens so many times in this book. <laughs> I like that he's taking pride in his Ankh-Morpork ank, uh, ank, ank armour, even mm-hmm. if it was definitely made by Uberwaldian dwarfs with Uberwaldian steel. Yes. It's like he's still determined to cling to a bit of Ankh-Morpork. Shame the tights go at the knees. <laughs> Shame the tights go at the knees. Uh, I am also using this to shoehorn in another line I really liked, which mm. is uh, there are a lot of things that could profitably be done in a minute, but most of them couldn't be done with no hands while hanging in darkness over a long drop. That's a good one. Can you think of any? What that I could profitably do in a minute? While hanging over a long drop with your hands tied up in the darkness. I can't think of anything to say that isn't ridiculously filthy, so I'm just going to move us on. <laughs> What? <laughs> All right, yeah, let's move on. I'm. I don't want to know. Jesus. Um, hey, I, I keep a lot of my mind away from you. Appreciate it, I guess. Uh, <laughs> uh, who was next? We've got Sybil. Oh no, I had a couple of oh, other I'm sorry. moments I really liked. One of which is his 
uh, again, taking a bit of Ankh-Morpork pride in the uh, national sense of humour. Yeah. Explaining. Uh, you'll know when we've got onto the famous Ankh-Morpork sense of humour when I start talking about breasts and farting, you smug bastard. Yeah, yeah, it's very Benny Hill. It is very Benny Hill. Oh my gosh, the chase through the snow with the Benny Hill soundtrack. Wolves on fire. And there's one where Gaspo's hanging off of one of them. I didn't give Gavin his own section because he's not doing a lot, but there's a nice moment where Vines... Obviously, I know he's dying and stuff, like the list got long. Vimes has a moment when he meets Gavin and he said, and recognised the look on Gavin's face. It's the look you got on the face of a gentleman lounging on a corner by a bank, watching the comings and goings, seeing how the place worked. Mm-hmm. Trying to imagine that on a wolf's face. Anyway, Sybil, let's talk Sybil. God, I love her so Finally much. Finally got a line out. Yes, <laughs> it's officially revealed that she has got a bun in the oven. Wow, I could see your brain working there to say it in like a way that you didn't find distasteful. I love that. <laughs> Look, I'm not... She is with child. I was trying to find a way that didn't sound gross, but everything like pregnancy. Like, no offense to any of our like pregnant or have children listeners. It's just it really freaks me out. Like to me, that is like no, cosmic too, body yeah. horror shit. Yeah, same. Especially since I learned about placentas. Uh, um, yeah, no. Anyway, um, but apart from being pregnant, she also just is very fucking cool in this section she is the actual diplomat in the relationship and i guess that nari must have known that i love when she's having to deal with seraphine and she's realizing she literally cannot make herself like her and like this is the woman who who can bring herself to like knobby knobs and that takes breeding (laughs) despite all of her distaste she still says oh i'm terribly sorry when she clobbers a werewolf with an iron bar (laughs) just a reflex (laughs) And it's this kind of moment of she's, she is the best. Something I also noticed about this book that I think, A, Sybil gets to do a lot more than she has in the last couple of watch books, Mm. but she also, her size is very rarely referred to and that's quite nice. Yeah, I think the only time I mentioned it was when the bar was moving. Yeah, and I think there's something about like the blue dress and women of a certain age stuff, but yeah, that's in character. It's not kind of punchline the way it has been in other books and that pleases me greatly yes yeah it's a matter of fact rather than the moment where she really loses it where vime saw sybil was loaded and ready to fire yes and and this is one of the few times her size is referenced and in a nice not punchline way where she's talking about the fact that because she she's big she tried to make herself seem small to make other people around her feel bigger she's been bred to get on with people mm. and be nice and um, Vimes is very calmly explaining, we've been having a lovely run in the woods, dear. <laughs> oh, did you like Seraphine's little backhander line about if he's alive, we'll do something about it? Like a kind of yeah. hinting that they'd save him, but like obvious double meaning of... Yeah, I like that the werewolves are kind of the least subtle and they're very much trying to be very clever and political and kind of being a bit dumb with it. Mm. Yeah, for sure. Oh, actually, before I forget, the I, I had one Seraphine thought, which was, do you think it's a bit odd that we didn't see her reaction to Wolfgang's death, or do you think that would have just brought it all down and been weird? I feel like it would have really affected the tone of the end of the book, yeah. weirdly. That's yeah. such a, a moment for... I don't, I don't want to say like oh, it's more important we see Vimes' reaction than that we see Wolfgang's mother's. But well, like, we did get Angua's. We did yeah. get anguish and it was mostly relief. Yeah. Although I did, again, I thought like Vimes' throwaway, I put him down thing to anguish was a bit like, 
I know he was angry with enemy, but it's like, come on, dude. I know you're doing a diehard, but also you just had that thought process about not doing a diehardy line. Yeah, uh, maybe uh, it's bottled up, wasn't it? But yeah. <laughs> anyway, sorry. Back to Sybil. Well, uh, Sybil on Vimes. There's a couple mm. of just really great moments, which is when Vimes is doing the Wolfgang's bottle Covey. You know, the type won't walk away, and you know, and uh, Lady Sybil saying, "I think I recognise the type," with an irony that failed to register with Vimes until some days later. <laughs> And uh, I think it's like the next page, it's, uh, I need to talk to you without you running off after werewolves. She said this as if it were a minor character flaw. Yes, can you please stop tapping your foot while we... <laughs> can you please stop running off to chase werewolves? Thank you. The one I highlighted was uh, built into Sybil's expression was the unquestioning assumption that he could do something. That's a really lovely moment. I love their relationship in this. Everything between them is nice. Yeah. It's like realistically nice as well for their for Vimes' personality type. He still can't like kiss his wife in public or like yeah, whatever. So no, he's he's doing his best. There's no soppiness to it. Mm. It's a very, very sweet and honest thing. Mm. It makes me happy. Cool, 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 cool. And then are we moving on to Churi? Yeah, let's talk Churi? about Churi. Cause cause I had I had some feelings. Feeling, this is a moment feeling that always me. made me cry. It's the moment right at the end where they're getting ready to go to the coronation and she's wearing trousers and she's dressed like a normal dwarf, or, you know, normal. Mm. Um, Traditional. As Vimes says, ordinary dwarf clothes, trousers and everything. And he's and he's kind of reassuring, like, you can w- wear whatever you want. Yeah. And Cherry's response is, yeah, I can. I don't have to wear a dress and I shouldn't wear it just because people don't want me to. Mm. And obviously it's a bit complicated, but it's really, really relatable. Like, obviously just comparing it to my own life. But, you know, when I started figuring out it was non-binary, I sort of felt the surge like, oh, God, well, I've got to start like presenting really androgynously. Mm. And then realize like... It's not very you. It's not very me. Like, I'm still going to present femme because that's the body shape I've got. I'm not going to try and change the body shape because we worked very hard to stop having those mental thoughts. And it's just the aesthetic you like and you're good at, like... Also, I look hot, and I really mm-hmm. like looking hot. Yeah. yeah, and it's a big moment of the you know non-binary people don't owe you androgyny, feeling like you relate to a certain gender identity, whether it's Cheery's. It, it's not transness, but it it's definitely parallelization. Yeah, yes, just because I'm female, yes, all right, lipstick and mascara maybe or something that maybe feminizes it a bit, but I don't have to go the whole hog every time. Yeah, especially if I part i'm only i'm not doing it because it's what i feel comfortable in i'm doing it to be reactionary yeah and the fact that that realization kind of comes about with after d's moment yes of this why should she be allowed to oh that was so yeah i've put sherry and d next to each other for a reason but i like that sherry a like through the entire book, Reese has only used her proper pronouns and not in a derogatory way. And then that's the little hint at the end as well that she might actually fancy the name of Cherie's dressmaker. Um, and like kind of going on to D as well, never doesn't use the correct pronouns. The moment D has her admittedly very fraught coming out moment, the Reese starts referring to her as she. Yeah. But yeah, those were my big gender feels is that I very much see myself and Cherie in that very specific moment of, I don't have to do it that way. Although I would fully support you if you decided you wanted a large flowing beard. I, I mean, if I could grow a beard, all bets would be off. I look so hot mm. with a moustache. It's yeah. ridiculous. But I've they're got really photo evidence. Yeah. 
I'll, if I can find it, I'll put it, I'll link it in the show notes. And then you have to drink everything through a straw. And if I want to drink beer with a massage, it's the whole thing. We won a joint Miss Movember pub award one year. Do you remember? Oh my God, we did. Yeah, yeah. I don't think anyway, I've got a photo of me with a moustache, but I've, I've got, got a photo of me than, that night. <laughs> I've got a photo of me from, I think, the first New Year's we spent together wearing a corset, a small top hat and a moustache. Yeah. I feel like that was the year that, Spotty said to get us use, into yeah. our outfits. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I love that picture. Anyway, so yeah, D. 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 Oh, D. Oh, D. dear. Oh, D. <laughs> There's a telling moment. I, I don't know if we talked about D's name last week, actually, did we? And I wondered if it's meant to be kind of a reference to John D. That was the only, like, D I could think of. John D. He was Queen Elizabeth I's, like, astronomy kind of guy. Oh, okay. Like, there was. there's lots of somewhat fictionalized history that he was, like, trying to uncover the Philosopher's Stone because she oh. wanted to keep living and... Do you know if there's, did you manage to think of any round world equivalents to ideas taster? Like, what's the synonym there? Like a- well, I feel like it's kind of, it's not an eminence grease, like it's not a power behind the throne, mm. but it's someone with a direct line. To, the reason I was thinking it might be a reference to John Dee is because it's someone who is very much adjacent to the throne, has the mm. ear off the king, has... It's like an advisor, isn't it? But like specifically ideas taster. It's like you're hearing advice from other people and it's going through you first or? Yeah. Mm. It's like a weird combination of like advisor and PR guy. Yeah. Listeners, if you can think of like a proper sensible parallel and round world to ideas taster, I'd be really happy because I was trying to think of one. Yes, do tell us. Um, But but Dee and what she goes through in this section, there is one line I found interesting considering what we learn about her by the end, which is when she calls Cheery uh dangerously different. Mm. Which I thought was quite telling considering her coming out moment. Yeah. That she sees that uh I suppose coming up shift to the status quo as threatening as much as it's what she needs, even if it's not what she can directly articulate she wants. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Huh. Mm. And and how she like calls her a slur just before coming out as well. That's a yes. It's like it's a, just projecting that hatred back out. Yeah, it's such a difficult scene, and it's things that I've seen I, a lot of queer people go through. Like I really hate the kind of narrative media. Like oh, the ho- the people doing the homophobic bullying are really just yeah. gay. It's like no, they, they might just be dicks. But internalized homophobia and internalized transphobia can be a really heavy thing, especially mm. when it's it's what you're raised around. Yeah, and it can come out in ways like this. And and the full rant of the final end of the breakdown of why should they be allowed to do this? I can't. Yeah. And you see how much has been held in. And on the one hand, I'm not like a huge fan of the narrative of like. Uh, it could have been handled very badly as this kind of evil trans person thing and there's been like really really bad transphobic media like uh the the best example i can think of is like uh one of the ace ventura movies there's a character that's trans and she's very much the bad guy because she's the evil trans lady that used to be a man and right hates herself because of it i think what I, I'm imagining that Pratchett's kind of at least background thinking on this is there have been a lot of cases where people who turned out later to be gay have been hugely, like, damagingly homophobic in places of power. 
Yes. No, absolutely. So, yeah. I'm, I'm not saying Pratch- yeah. that's what Pratchett's doing. I'm saying it. No, yeah, no, I know. Yeah. It's hard to go past this without pointing that out as mm. like a common, badly handled narrative. J.K. Rowling's uh, alter ego, also horrible transphobic. Oh, uh, yeah. Like uh, even the- more out there than her normal ego. <laughs> yeah. Her pen name is the name of the guy that helped come up with conversion therapy. Yeah. Cute. Yeah. <sighs> and then she wrote a book where... A man dresses up as women to kill people. I'll tell you who doesn't deserve a fucking castle while we don't have a castle, Joanna. It's J.K. Rowling. Oh, J.K. Rowling, who claimed that she was being harassed and doxxed because some protesters took a photo outside of her, of her fucking castle. castle. Yeah. That, that, like, it's listed on fucking Wikipedia that she lives there. I think you can do tours. Mm. Anyway. Yes. I mean, anyway. not that I'm saying we would be the next deserving people on a list. I'm saying... Like, we deserve a castle deserving. more than J.K. fucking yeah. Rowling. Yeah. Anyway, should we move on? <laughs> yeah, should sorry. Ta- should we talk about the Low King? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Fucking dark moment. Like, he's kind of willing to do some nasty psychological torture. Oh, yeah. Which one are you thinking of particularly? When he's got Dee's hands on the stone and oh, yeah, nah. Dee thinks, like, there's the it's going to start burning and he's very calmly asking the questions and starting with questions about Iron Axe and Bloodhammer and this kind of rote learning thing. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then goes switches and where it goes and who gave the order to kill the craftsman in Ankh-Morpork and doesn't change his tone or his mm. expression. A very clever writing bit though, because it's a great demonstration of how powerful the scone is, even though Dean knows it isn't real. And so yeah. like the the fact of the fake still being the truth is a nice little like re, like real violent reinforcement of it. I've held back so far, but now I get to very quickly say, power of belief, power of belief, my favourite theme that Pratchett uses is power of belief. Oh, I haven't heard that in ages. Well, Andrew, <laughs> very excited to be here, even if it's during a psychological torture scene. I can uh, I can bring up power of belief right at the end of the show as well, if you like. Oh, I've got a little chunk. Okay, cool. <laughs> got a little chunk of belief for you. A little chunk you. of belief in the, is it a burnt crispy chunk? Uh, I feel like it's a it's a nice a sausage well baked. <laughs> it's a well baked chunk. <laughs> anyway, God, okay. no. no, I'm so sorry. I'm so sorry. <laughs> I think uh, that was my fault. So the low king, Reese Reese, any more on? Uh, well, we've them? got the whole. Shall I go them for now? I think maybe them. Ambiguous, maybe yeah. them. The whole ship of Theseus thing with the axe, mm. where he's explaining that the scone is always the scone, even if it's been remade, because of mm-hmm. course it would naturally last that long. And, you know, if you replace the axe's handle and the axe's head, the Sugar Babes theory, if you replace the entire lineup, is the band still the Sugar Babes? Yep, yep. yep. And the answer is yes. The axe. Was there any significance in, in like, the way it was? Pr- it was just a nice axe, wasn't it? Because all the axes in this book are really, like, detailed in their description. And so I was trying to look for hidden meaning, and I think he just likes describing axes. I feel like there's kind of a hint of, you know, these these are fantasy parodies and there's a mm. bit of Lord of the Rings to it. I feel like the dwarves are the closest Lord of the Ring, Rings parody. Yeah. Like elves go off in a really different direction, and obviously humans are very multifaceted, but the dwarves with the mines and the yeah. beards and the yeah. lack axes. of obvious <laughs> women and the axes, because you do need a, a mining axe. Um slight tangent to Brooklyn Nine-Nine watch the episode where Rosa's going through all the weapons she has in her house and, and like to Amy and she's like what don't you have an axe every woman should have an axe and now I feel like I need an axe I'm not sure I if quite- we have one we've got machetes chainsaws all of that but I'm not sure if we have an axe you have got like a whole machete cupboard I'm not sure you have an axe. <laughs> 
<laughs> I'd be, no, actually, I was about to say I'd be more confident with an axe than a machete, but that's not true. I tried log splitting. Like, yes, you did. <laughs> I'm not very good at it, but there is something really satisfying about standing there with a massive axe, but it's also kind of terrifying, like you're really trying to make sure you keep your legs out of the way in case you miss. Yeah, I wouldn't enjoy it. There's a whole subgenre in TikTok of... Like hot people. Hot cutting people, cutting yeah, 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 yeah. I know. Okay, yeah. Did you end up on the lesbian side of it as well? Yeah. Anytime I get onto any kind of thirst TikTok, it immediately takes me to the lesbian version of the <laughs> thirst too, TikTok. Me too, though. I don't... <laughs> For a straight woman, you've got very queer energy. <laughs> dungaree. You say I'm just hungry. What did you say? Dungarees of fear. Dungarees of sadness. Sadness. <laughs> it's my dungarees of sadness. Uh, Lady Margolotta. Speaking of, well, maybe actually, I don't know. Yeah, she's. Like, well, she's I into feel like, Ari, but I think she feel go like anyway. If, pan. I think she's got yeah, bio pan vibes. I think yeah. if you live for that long, you're gonna. Stop you're going to experiment. Really... Yeah, you're going to play around. Yeah. Embrace the smorgasbord of... No, right, we're going to stop there. Good, well done. Because I'm not really sure where it was going to end. <laughs> like the full smorgasbord of gender. Oh, okay, of gender. Right, right, right. Yeah. I thought you were going to say of sexual possibility. That would have been a much better sentence. Smorgasbord <laughs> of sexual possibility. There we go. Title of my sex, your sex tape. tape. Yes. <laughs> Jake threw me a Coke. Um, so she rescues Vimes and Wolfgang. Yes. Equal so opportunity she's... helicopter is our Margot Lotta. Yeah, she, she's keeping the game going and in the process sort of reveals to Vimes that she's the vampire equivalent of a teetotaler. Yes. Which is a nice concept to bring in. And we've, we we even see her at her, the I guess, the vampire equivalent of an Alcoholics Anonymous meeting. I didn't make many notes about the meeting itself, which must be just such a weird vibe. I did. I mostly marked the meeting because we get her full name. In the short form, anyway. Oh, yes. Lady Margolotta Amaya Katerina Assumpta Christina von Überwald. Which, she's von Überwald, and That's... so are the werewolves. Hmm. Which I feel like, is it just... I don't know how the von title works in Round World, but I feel like it's something like of, isn't it? So it's more location-based than surname Yeah. What's the Russian author you like? Um, the very famous one, Tolstoy. There's a musical version of one of his books. Oh, uh, Natasha Pierre and the Great Comet of 1812. Yeah, hold on. I've not listened to the soundtrack of it. I've heard it. I heard it was really good. Obviously, it's a shame it got closed. Oh, did it? Oh, yeah. There's it, COVID. No, ah. um, there's a. Uh, I'll see if I can find the hobby drama post on it because it was like a whole big thing involving dear evan hansen winning a lot of tonys over that musical oh. which is terrible because dear evan hansen's a really bad show i am very willing to yuck anyone's yum there no it's bad oh yes yeah, so, yes so their name is maria dmitrievna akrosimova countess natalia ilinitia rostova you must call me natasha anyway that was in that tune in my head uh, I'll link okay. to it. that was a lot of wind up to i can't remember the fucking characters' names. <laughs> well, they're long names. Sofia Alexandrovna Rostova. I hope you enjoyed the Hamilton reference that went in the I summary. did, I did. I did do a finger gun, which listeners won't pick up on because I muted myself. But Because usually my finger guns are outrageously loud. <laughs> I had to choose between a reference to not throwing away my shot or do an M reference. So if you've only got one shot, this is your ch- this opportunity comes yeah. once in a lifetime. His palms are sweaty, knees weak, fats up and spaghetti. No. No. Terrible. Carry no. on. Sorry. Right. 
So Lady Margolotta <laughs> has sublimated some of her cravings onto uh, black Scopani cigarettes, uh, which I'm assuming is probably a reference to Sobrani, mm-hmm. my preferred wanky cigarette. Uh-huh. Um, but I just want to put a pin in something she says, because we'll come back to this later. She says to Vimes, you're good at anger. You save it up for when you need it. Mm-hmm. Okay. I like that. Anger is a anyway. resource. Pin. Pinned. And then, yeah, fucking Wolfgang. <sighs> fucking Wolfgang. Beautiful He's bit a- of description at one point. Steam was rising off Wolfgang. He shone in the torchlight. The blonde hair across his shoulders gleamed like a slipped halo. Yeah. I do like that line. That's a nice bit of simile. Not do you pudding. think he did oil himself up a bit? Absolutely, yes. Yeah. He could probably just he could probably justify it by saying like you, you rub grease over yourself to keep warm in the in the cold, right? And if yeah, he's gonna be naked like all the time. But really he does it because it makes his muscles look shiny. But this concept of like this game, this hunt, an angle mm. kind of justifying it with, you know, well father did it, but it was, you know, people got their start from it and he played by the rules. Yes. Do you know, I I came across a brief reference of apparently Russian nobles used to hunt serfs with their like borzois and that and i did not go further into that because i ran out of time so i don't know if that was a an actual thing or i can see it being a thing me too i I know that people have done that to aboriginal people for instance but um yeah hunting people has definitely happened yes yeah i was just wondering if there was a specific russian parallel considering into it and follow up next time what was that there was a podcast i listened to that talked about like specifically what serfdom was as opposed to say being a servant or a peasant oh it was you're wrong about um when dana schwartz came on to talk about catherine the great they went oh, into yeah. in great detail like what it went to be a serf so if you're interested in that listeners uh, mm-hmm. i'll link to that in the show notes as well there's also a good i think behind the bastards episode where they go into that for the yeah for the uh less faint of heart i must say uh, <laughs> not not no they, they cover some pretty gnarly subjects on you're wrong about but they're a lot nicer about it <laughs> they are even the diatlov parser episode was very lovely sorry i'll stop talking about fucking diatla pass um <laughs> this is your last one i think it's relevant to this book but it we're is not, fairly we're not having it in the truth <laughs> fine <laughs> you're gonna have to find another tragic unsolved mystery there fine. are lots surrounding newspapers cool right Note to self, so that's enough about the nazi mystery that's enough about the nazi let's talk about angua who's not a nazi way she even gets a moment of of quoting Carrot and doing the personal isn't the same as important, mm. which is quite interesting because it's, it's taken her a minute to learn that considering this this whole trip that's coming up here has been very much a personal errand. Yeah. Yeah. And I don't know, like it's been a, it's been a little bit of a journey for her as well, hasn't it? But it is. I feel like she gets a bit separated from the action. It, especially in this last section, um, there's one moment when um, Carrot's been attacked by Wolfgang and then Gavin takes over and mm. Vimes expects Angua to be furious and instead she's crying. And then she also has the later kind of crying breakdown after she's fought Wolfgang. And she, I was about to say, she did get in on that action. She does get in there and she does have a very good fight. It's just when I think of the character, I don't like thinking of her naked and crying. I'd rather no. think of her... It's not that I think it's realistic, but it is upsetting, yeah. Yeah, it, it's it's hard to read because you can yeah. see at that point how broken down she is and how like afraid she is, not so much yeah. for her brother, but of the fact that he's going to keep yeah. coming after Carrot. Yeah. Well, she loves Carrot so much. 
She does. I, I like uh, Vimes has a good moment of pride when she's fighting uh, Wolfgang. So he's doing a movie. And he's like, "That's like more pork fighting." I taught her that. Good, good stuff. <laughs> I really like his sense of pride in her, like as a policeman, but also just as a person that he knows and has worked with. Mm, mm, absolutely. Yes, and although he's like super awkward about it, he's not so awkward. He won't pick her up off the floor and comfort her. Yeah, when she's like naked and crying. Yeah, she, he's a, he's a good boss to her. I'm and not going Sybil's, to go so far as to say he's a good boss, but he's a good boss to Angler. <laughs> and Sybil's great there. She immediately picks Angler up and yeah. kind of takes over in the way that only Sybil can, which is mm-hmm. very practical caring. You'd want to be looked after by Sybil if you were crying, wouldn't you? Because she's not the kind of person who's going to make it worse by being like, oh, head tilt. But yeah, Angler eventually does decide to come back to Angmore Pork, mostly thanks to your quote, Karis promised that he will be the one to take her out if she needs to be taken out. We were working up to it with every time she cried i think because it was just so clear how much she loved carrot and she wouldn't yeah. let him say it but no but she wanted it to be acknowledged mm. and be out there mm. and the moment she kind of seems to just comfortably be very back in her skin the moment they walk back into the watch office yes because yeah different world home yeah it's her home and it's her world much more than Uber world ever is now and i'm very happy for her mm. and yeah that takes us neatly on to carrot who gets one last <sighs> good Carrot. moment right at the end of the book. Yes. <laughs> the the wolf fight. Oh, yes. <laughs> and I think that's a really important moment for Angler as well, because it's not just that he would, it's that he could. When she sees him taking out the lead wolf and basically doing a gavin, he bites the back of the neck and does almost the same mm. perm. And he's learnt so fast from like the one mistake he made throwing a stick for gavin. Yeah. He knows not to treat them like dogs. He knows how to establish his dominance and he knows how to leave them in a comfortable position mm. yeah. where eats wrong meat can still be in charge while Carrot's not around. Yeah, his near-death experience was like just really jarring, wasn't it? Because he's so invincible in almost all these situations. To see him like fall down. I remember like thinking for because the first time I read this was probably I think it was around the time I just read the first Game of Thrones book. Ah, yes. And bear in mind I hadn't been the TV series was out by that point. I hadn't been spoiled on the TV series, but I knew it was a big name playing this main guy. So like, of course he's not gonna. Oh no, no, he's dead. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I remember that being such a big shock that I then got into this race. The fictional characters aren't safe, and I hadn't read much Discworld, <laughs> so I, I think I genuinely thought Carrot was dead for a second until he obviously wasn't. But yeah, no, it's like th- to see the two carrot moments in such quick succession. So the thing with the wolves and then the thing with the watch where he yeah. goes and does like the alpha wolf thing, but to Colin. <gasps> oh, it's a great moment. On your feet, Sergeant, am I hurting you? I ought to be. I'm standing on your beard. Um, <laughs> which is like as unnatural coming out of him as biting a wolf is. But he just knows how to deal with people in situations, even when as is. I think maybe he's finally learning to as Angua puts it, uh, slide the claw out. But it, yeah, it's good to see that side of Carrot. And, and the, he sort of goes back to nice Carrot where he calmly says, you know what, More this is my fault. This is my fault. I left you in an uncomfortable position. And it is kind of his fault. Yeah, no, it is. As, as I said previously, the admin here has been atrocious. I understand in, it from Carrot's point of view here what he had to do. But the fact that we're not more set fail saves put in place is a failing of everybody involved. I think part of the issue was Cheery and Detritus being gone as well. 
And now I want to read a book that's just cheery and detritus left in charge of the watch. Because like, what a little buddy I smell thing. a sitcom. <laughs> it would be such a good sitcom. <laughs> it would be very 90s. We'd need like the whole like opening montage shot of Cherry like doing a thing, then looking at camera like, oh, you. <laughs> oh, you. Ruby would be there as like the disapproving wife every now and then when a hijink happens. I'm fucking like last set of applause when Nobby walks in the room, especially if he's wearing like a women's outfit. <laughs> Woohoo! <laughs> Wolf whistles when he comes in in the bonnet. Oh no! All right, we need to think about this more on our own time because we've we we're running late already. <laughs> we've still we're still not even through all the characters. Uh, Thank God so, yeah. we've not got locations. <laughs> I left out locations this week. I think we've got enough to be getting on with Tantony, yeah. Tantony, Tantony. Captain Tantony of the Bonk Watch. Yeah, I know where Tantony's name's from. Oh! It's a shortened form of the name of Sir Anthony the Abbot. Mm-hmm. And from there, you get the phrase Tantony Pig, which is the smallest pig of the litter, which I imagine is the reference here. Oh, that's sweet. Yeah. <laughs> but yeah, he's, he's, uh, well, he's not happy. He's not because happy. He, oh, he's not He's happy. been told that things happen in a way that aren't how he saw them, and he's kind of thinking... He's not having a bar of it. No, because it's not how it happens in Ackmorepork. My Lord Vimes would arrest anyone, they said, which is, he did go and arrest a battlefield. So he did, he did. He's got precedent. God, how much of those paperwork piles do you think were just left over from Jingo? Yeah, do you know what? Vimes might not be as cross as they think he might. <laughs> I think he'll secretly be quite pleased. Yeah. Obviously, if he'd come back to No Watchman, he'd have been very angry, quite librarian poo. But coming back to No Paperwork, because like he'd been composting it, I think he'd be. Uh, I think he's all right about especially it, especially if someone else was sorting out the new wage chitty or whatever. But Tantony's insistence, like him and Vimes arguing over who's going to have a go at arresting Wolfgang, which sort of ends with you know, tell you what, after he's killed me, you can have a go. Yeah. <laughs> And it's like he's kind of finally, well, he's really chastised because, you know, Vimes is starting to respect him and say, oh, you know, Hank Wilbork City Watch, you let them do what with my wife? Oh, yeah. Yes. And then that's obviously brought Tantony enough shame to go and do something incredibly stupid. And to try and be, try and take uh, tw- twice after he gets the shit kicked out of him by Wolfgang when he tries to arrest Seraphine, he then wants to go and arrest Wolfgang, which fair play to him. Yeah. Yep. Thank goodness for Eagles. It's like, Learning how to Vimes without all of the context of everything Vimes has been through. It's like he's trying mm. to skip to the last level, but he hasn't got enough XP to get the good weapons. <laughs> oh my god, yeah. It's like when you wander into the wrong bit of Fallout and get smacked by a death claw. You're like, oh, no, other direction. Fine. I'll come back later. <laughs> Wolfgang yep. is a death claw. Yeah, yeah. I'll take that. Mm-hmm. Cool. Okay. We've established that. Gaspode. Gaspode. Described by Vimes as the canine equivalent of Nobby, which I'd not thought of before, but absolutely yes. But our Gaspode, when he finds Gavin's body, and he's very upset, and he says, you know, if you're a human, they put you in a big boat on the tide and set fire to it. It shouldn't be just you and me down here. I'm sure Carrot will tell him that you got a good burial. And Yeah. I, I, I love his ending, though. He's standing on the prow going, hmm. Yeah, he has his nice little yeah. standing on the boat. I'm a little boat dog. <laughs> he would make a very good little boat dog, actually. Mm. It's one of my favourite things about if you go like on holiday somewhere where there's canals. I love going for a walk along canals and there's always people come past on their boats and there's a dog on the boat and yeah. they wave and you wave back and the dog wags its tail. Wow. It's the best thing. Charming. And yeah, Colin, I just wanted to bring up... Cause it's Not charming. 
Cullen is not charming. We already talked about him getting kind of shouted back into himself, which uh, we found the cheat codes for Conan, I guess, but you've really got to be able to do that tone of mm. voice. But at the moment where he's on his own and the watch house is slowly cooling down. Yeah, yeah. Oh, the chair's creaking, yeah. His hand went down to the desk and came back automatically while he looked straight ahead. There was the crunch of a sugar lump being eaten. And that switch into passive voice for that last sentence. Best whodunit revelation in all of literature. I'm saying it now. I'm planting yeah. my flag. Yeah. Fuck you, Poirot. But the way it goes into passive to kind of indicate that he's not really aware he's doing it. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Smart. That's such a clever little little writing. Perhaps it's quite a good writer, really, isn't he? Yeah. Huh. Huh. We, we, should should we picked a good one for this. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> And then Nobby, I just love for his panicked explanation of trying to explain how the strike happened. We see Fred kind of, and then he got all sort of, and then next thing you know, he was setting forter, and then we, and then he wouldn't come out, and then we, and then he nailed up the door, and Mrs. Fred came and shouted at him through the letterbox, and most of the Mrs. lads have Fred. gone off and got other jobs. <laughs> and now there's just me and Dorful and Reg and Washpot, and we come here, turn and turn about, and we shove food through the letterbox for him, and, and that's it, really. Yeah, it's satisfactory. Yeah. I liked his moment with Batnari. Batnari's like, I gather you have withdrawn your labour. In your case, I'm sure this presented a good deal of difficulty. I, I love that veterinary scene because it's very much like he's clearly, this isn't veterinary being threatening. This is veterinary actually really quite happy with what's happening right now. Amused. <laughs> and just sort of looking forward to seeing it all play out. It's nice to, because veterinary is very controlled i think secretly he's enjoying the possible little bit of chaos that's going to come up yeah whereas knowing in his heart of hearts that because everybody's shit scared of vimes it's not going to go too far yeah like he yeah. says to drum not like crimes down everyone is fully aware that vimes will go spare yeah i love the phrase go spare as well because i only see it in the Discworld book specifically referring to uh vimes yes it's um in it's, yeah feet of clay when nobby's being offered like the kingship and he's like but vimes will go spare i thought that had been nudging nobby for some time chose this moment to besiege him once again mr vimes is going to go spare he's going to go mental <laughs> you can just see the glaze coming over his eyes can't you as that comes yeah. back and he's like no okay right get on with it <laughs> Uh, and then lastly just quick hi to young eagle we haven't really talked about the eagle as much in this book obviously r.i.p embassy eagle yeah although he'll be back it sounds like in yeah. the fullness of time what go the round comes the round but young eagles they uh got a big jar full of noses a rabbit covered in ears and a and pocket it. full of dreams <laughs> <laughs> the rabbit covered in ears thing there was like a, th a, a science a science thing well, there was yeah. a science, yeah. Some scientists there was did a science. science. There was a mouse with an ear on its back. It wasn't an ear, though. Like, it wasn't, like, transplanted. They made, like, a biodegradable scaffolding and, like, grew the ear on it. Oh, right. Okay. Yeah. Yeah, because that was, was quite a long time ago, wasn't it? Oh, no, they, like, made the scaffolding and grew the ear and then grafted it onto the mouse. But it wasn't, like, taken from a person and put on a mouse is the point. Oh, good. Yeah. And I don't <laughs> think the mouse could hear through the human ear on its back. Oh, good. I don't think it was wired up to the relevant canals. His little noses on legs. Um, makes me very happy. Me too. Also, it's referred to as bio-artificing, which made me laugh twice earlier when you were talking about how much you hate the phrase biohacking. 
He's a bioartificer. Artificer. Artificer. <laughs> I enjoy it in the context of Discworld and a young Igorg inventing yeah, yeah, yeah. new Igor-related technologies. I don't enjoy it in the real world when it's Igorian. used in diet articles like biohack your metabolism to lose 10 pounds fast. Yeah. I can lose 10 pounds fast by not closing my wallet properly, and I don't have to fuck about ha. with nonsense like biohacking. Ha. Sorry. Ah, two that things. A, it means two things. Ah, it means two things. <laughs> that was a pune or a play on word, listener. <laughs> I feel like we should probably take a little break. Little bits we liked. What little bits do we like? Oh, I don't know. Wolves. I do like wolves. Wolves are actually, I really, wolves are one of my absolute favourite animals, but they've been totally ruined by like bros. Oh, I thought you were going to say by fleeces with wolves on. Because disagree, well, yeah, I've come to like those. <laughs> I like them. I don't like a lot of people who wear them. Yeah, you, you, fair. you are obviously an exception. It's really funny though. I don't wear them. <laughs> well, no, but if you did yeah. wear one, I would support you in that choice. Okay. <laughs> it's true. Really, is they have a wolf enclosure at uh, one of our closer zoos, uh, and I went to the zoo with my sister and her little boy, and totally forgot that she is terrified of wolves and can't walk through that bit. How did because... she develop that phobia? Uh, they watched Peter and the Wolf at like nursery, and it was a creepy animation of it. Like she can't hear the the music, the Peter and the Wolf music, which yeah. I can never remember off the top of my head without like getting really freaked out. Uh, so uh, I totally forgot she's terrified of wolves. And we got to the wolf enclosure, and I went running in to see see the wolves, and she was just stood outside. Like, bear in mind, this is the sister who less than five minutes before was like, when I went into the tiger bit and was like, "Oh my god, it's eating a massive chunk of bloody meat right now." Came running in to see. Of course, then the, the little boy had a bit of an upset when he realised he wasn't allowed to go and cuddle the puppies. I'd be upset too. Yeah, no. I, I'm quite upset that I can't go and cuddle wolves. Yeah. There is a thing somewhere where there's like a, it is a wild wolf population, but there's a cabin you can stay in and the wolves are friendly enough that you can actually go and sit out and be around the wolves and they'll come mm. up to you and you can pet them. Sandy Toxvig did it on like a travel show and there's a really lovely video of her getting to like cuddle a wolf. But in real life, listeners, you shouldn't do that. Sandy Toxvig yeah. does live in a fantasy realm. Yeah, Sandy Toxvig, not entirely. She is some form of fae, I think. Yeah. yeah. Anyway, did you find a fun, fun wolf fact? Because I nearly forgot to look them up. Uh, yeah. So Homo homini lupus, which is the wolf's lot's motto, maybe? Our family motto, yes, sorry. Homo homini lupus, a man is wolf to other men. Or man is wolf to man. The idea of it is, it's like references situations where people have been predatory, kind of, you know, that kind of thing. But a variation of the proverb appeared in the play Asinaria by Plautus, which mm -hmm. I think you, it's, it's one of those, it's one of those, no, Roman, yeah, Roman, yeah, yeah. But anyway, it's a lupus es homo homini non homo com calicit non novit. Uh, no, which no. has been translated as man is no man, but a wolf to a stranger, which I think makes more sense. Yeah. As a counterpoint, Seneca the Younger wrote uh, homo sacra res homini, which has been translated as man, an object of reverence in the eyes of man. Basically, it descends into uh, philosophical bickering, as we do quite enjoy, but I don't have time for much more. So. Fair enough. What's your wolf fact? Direwolves. So direwolves were a real thing about, they were like, around the times of the megafauna about 13,000 years ago. Mm -hmm. Obviously extinct now. And they're thought of as like a, an ancestor to the grey wolf, um, probably around the same size, but massive bone-crushing jaws. Like oh. they, were, um, 
focused on things like horses and mastodons. Like you wouldn't fuck with them. So it's always been assumed that they were basically big wolf, big grey wolves. Yeah. And that's where the grey wolf comes from. But um, in early 2021, scientists uh, revealed surprising results after sequencing DNA from direwolf subfossils. Apparently, they're actually only very distant cousins to grey wolves. And it's a it's more like convergent evolution rather than close relation. And uh, sorry, I'm, I'm reading this straight from an article, but uh, direwolf DNA indicates a highly divergent lineage that split from living canids 5.7 million years ago hmm. with no evidence of interbreeding with any living canid species. So yeah, divergent evolution. Cool. I like that. I like that. That's good. And then anyway. if you want more wolf facts, listeners, uh, Joanna's going to do a rabbit hole on wolves on our Patreon at some point reasonably be- soon. Probably early next month. Yes, werewolves in pop culture. Look forward Mm. to that. Uh, So the Marquis of Fantea. Mm -hmm. Have I written down the wrong fucking page? No, I haven't. Sorry. My page numbers are all over the place because I kept putting threes where there should be fours. (laughs) This is a footnote, so it's this idea of the the Marquis of Fantea rules of fighting, Mm -hmm. the carrot attempts later on in the book. Uh, The Marquis of Fantea got into many fights in his youth, most of them as a result of being known as the Marquis of Fantea, wrote a set of rules, what he termed the noble art of fisticuffs, which was mostly a list of places people weren't allowed to hit him. And uh, many people were impressed, later stood with the noble chest out thrust and fist balled in a spirit of manly aggression against people who hadn't read the Marquis book, but did know how to knock people senseless with a chair. Mm. Hence the last words of people being stuffed the bloody Marquis of Fantea. <laughs> so I'd heard the phrase Queensbury rules, um, largely as a kind of comedy thing, like I think like Blackadder, that sort of thing. People square up, Queensbury rules, Queensbury rules. Mm-hmm. Uh, so there were actually a code of rules for boxing mm-hmm. uh, from the 19th century, I guess, uh, when boxing matches were like a much bigger form of it. Obviously, they're still a big form of entertainment, but they were like bare-knuckle boxing matches outside of pubs, that sort of thing. There were quite a few different rule sets, and the Marquess of, que- Marquess of Queensbury rules are the ones that are still most relevant to the current rules of conduct in modern boxing. Nothing below um, the belt. Yes, that sort of thing. Uh, if you, I've linked to a little article about them that gives you the full list, but I laughed more than I should have done at rule two, no wrestling or hugging allowed. And I'm fully aware that in this case, hugging means like grabbing or something, yeah. but I like the idea there's a rule against the boxers being too affectionate and giving each other a little cuddle. So, Joanna, will it get better if you pick it? I feel like at this point we should say solidarity with people striking. We are very pro-strike action. Pro-industrial action when negotiations fail. Yes. Uh, But yes, some of the picket signs chosen by the watch. We had colon out from Reg. Nice and simple, but does sound a bit like surgery. (laughs) Dorfel was holding a large, closely worded text detailing their grievances in full with reference to watch procedures and citing a number of philosophical texts. Which, well done, Dorfel. He really does understand the power of words, even if they're not really legible on a sign. <laughs> well, you don't want to skimp, do you? When you, you have to, he's very exact with all of his. He's very precise. Yeah. And Constable Visit, which says, "What profiteth, what profiteth it a kingdom if the oxen be deflated?" Yeah, do you know what that means? <laughs> no, but apparently it's from R- Riddles, chapter two, verse three. Well, probably why I don't know what it means. <laughs> I mean, obviously, like. Uh, it, it mean like the the oxen being the beast of burden and I, f- I feel like 
I feel like there's been at least 18 schisms in the Omnian church about yeah, the deflated oxen. There's definitely. probably a sect of the deflated oxen. Oh, there's definitely a year of the deflated oxen somewhere. Yes, probably. <laughs> but I just, I like moments like that in books where you get like a little character study by giving each of the uh, characters like a something to hold up that to demonstrate who they are. Yeah, for sure. Going like it's from a regist- canon, it? <laughs> Except not headcanon because practice. He's allowed to write his own canon. That's, that's yes. his writer's author. <laughs> <laughs> we'll allow it. And then why are all of mine together? Why did I do this? Um, I don't know. They are very close together, actually. That wasn't just me tacking them on the end for once. <laughs> uh, the three sisters. Uh, and here is where we have the uh, Chekhov chunk. Chekhov chunk, nice. Book. <laughs> So there's kind of three Chekhov plays being re- uh, ref- two Chekhov plays being referenced here. There's a oh they're looking at a cherry orchard. So Chekhov did have a play called the Cherry Orchard. In fact, I believe that was 1903. That was his last published play. Yeah. Um, there's kind of a, a theme to Chekhov's work that it's all very ennui. It's all very wistful. It's all very dissatisfaction with life and it is, and nothing really gets better by the end of the book. Yeah. Which is done here in a fun comedy way so the the main one being referenced is obviously the play the three sisters yeah uh published in 1901 it's about three sisters with a very unhappy life and a younger idiot brother who marries a dickhead and yes they all dream of they all dream of going back to moscow but especially arena the youngest because they were all happier then the thing is about chekhov is he saw his works as comedies and yeah. a lot of the directors didn't um, and so he got into huge conflicts with people who kept who insisted on making the actors play it straight. And he was like, no, it's bleak. funny. It's funny. Yeah. It's, it's funny because <laughs> look at how sad he is. <laughs> Part of the comedy comes from the fact that these people are so endlessly dissatisfied. Yeah. yeah. And that there is nothing that could be done to make these characters happy. I, I, I find it funny, although I think Pratchett does the comedy better, but that maybe just because I'm not Russian enough. Uh, something's always going to be lost in translation. Yeah. Um, I did find some nice quotes, though, uh, Mm -hmm. from the three sisters. This is the opening scene, which is what's being parodied with them looking over in this, with them looking out over the cherry orchard. Mm. Um, And Olga, the eldest, is saying, um, this morning I woke up and I saw a blaze of colour. I saw the spring and gladness bubbled up inside my heart and I desperately wanted to be where I came from in my native land. I feel as if every day my youth and strength have been oozing away drop by drop. The only thing that grows and strengthens is one single dream. And Irina chimes in with, to go back to Moscow, to sell the house, to finish everything here and then to Moscow. So yeah, that one's a bit more depressing. We could build a roller skating rink. I love the, uh, ah, trousers for better than. Mm. Yes, so the gloomy and purposeless trousers of Uncle Vanya. Sorry, I didn't say that properly. The gloomy and purposeless trousers of Uncle Vanya. Thank you. I'm not going to do the Chekhov quotes in the accent. Um, and I'm guessing the gloomy and purposeless is supposed to reference the kind of sad ennui of all the Chekhov plays. The, uh, the Pratchett mentions the trousers or replies to something about the trousers on one of the forums. Oh, yeah, uh, I lost that. It came up I, and annotated. Uh, which I did screenshot on the first episode and then finally saved it for the right one. <laughs> which is just that Uncle Vanya does not include any trousers and it's uh, featured in the play and practice says well yes vimes, got, vimes them. Has got them you cannot let me finish a fucking sentence joanna uh, <laughs> jesus sorry i was trying to do it at the same time i thought it'd be funny <laughs> i can see you desperately trying to find it before i could finish <laughs> it's really stressful 
I'm the worst. Okay, let's move on. I'll let you say things. Okay. Margolotta in her meeting has a kind of inner monologue bit where she's thinking about giving giving up blood in this case, but addiction in general, which is he found that what he really wanted was power and there were much politer ways of getting it. And then you realise that power was a bauble. Any thug had power. The true prize was control. All Venari knew that. When heavy weights were balanced on the scales, the trick was to know where to place your thumb. And all control started with self. And it's very similar to a lot of the conversations you get with recovering alcoholics, which is just the either this is either this was something I could control, or this was something that allowed me to take my thumb off the scale for a minute, or basically just trying to find the initial motivation, which is the symptom versus cause thing, I suppose. Yeah, And in Lady Margolotta's case, uh, that cause was wanting to control a huge sprawling country, which yeah. is, at least I guess she's good at that. I took up watercolour. Uh, <laughs> I mean, I do feel like Lady Margolotta's got that similarity with Veterinaria of like benevolent tyrant. Like, mm. I'm okay with the fact that she's taking over a whole country. I'm not sure she is benevolent because... I do feel like she's a bit even-handed. <laughs> yeah, maybe a bit more less human affair. life is yeah, not so concerned with individual human life. Mm. Uh, and yeah, the other little bit I liked was just the significance of the schoon. I just wanted to fill in some of the details I missed when I was talking about the the robbery of the schoon, or the not yes. the robbery, the liberation. Let's call it. Let's be on Scotland's side for this. Mm -hmm. Legends say that the stone of schoon also known as the Stone of Destiny, dramatically, uh, might have been bought by St. Columba to Scotland from Ireland as a portable altar, then turned into a throne, which does show the wonderful malleability, I suppose, of a slab of rock as a yep. continuity piece. It um, could have eventually <laughs> become a sacred coffee table. Exactly so, in another thousand years. Um, it was then used as coronation chair when Columba crowned... Wow, Scottish people, you can come right back at me on this one. The king... Ethan MacGavran, maybe. It's not spelled that way, but I looked up the proper pronunciation and tried to do that whole thing with, you know, the IPA, the little symbols for pronunciations? Yeah, yeah I've got to learn them properly one day. Um, anyway, other monarchs, including Macbeth and Robert the Bruce, also sat on it during their coronations, and then it was nicked in the 13th century. However, there is a belief that the stone under the coronation chair in Westminster is in fact a 13th century substitute for the real Stone of Destiny. And here we get into a little parallel disc world, perhaps, maybe. The theory goes that monks Iona substituted the stone, uh, which is described differently to how it looks in some historical accounts, giving a bit of credence to the theory, maybe, if you really want to believe it, and hid the real one. Uh, the tales of where it's been hidden kind of range from the maybe to the definitely not, but that's a nice story. Um, some say it was taken to the Hebrides, where it remains today, which I quite like. This is called the Westminster Stone Series, a whole wiki page on it, I'll link to. Mm -hmm. uh, whichever stone is currently in Westminster won't be there for long with any luck. Uh, the Stone of Destiny is meant to be moved to Perth in 2022 to sit on public display in the refurbed Perth City Hall. Uh, but it will be transported back to Westminster Abbey for future coronations. Ah. I find it really funny if they take it up to Perth and the Queen dies like the next week. And they yeah, have to bring it straight back for a yeah. coronation. You know that's going to happen, don't you? She's yeah. going to hang on for that. And that's all I want to say about the skin of Stoon. Because, the stone of skin. Yeah. Or the stone of 
Scone. Scone. The stone of scone. <laughs> because I've managed not to trip over my words too much and I'm not going to push it. <laughs> I'm proud of you. Let's go on to the bigger stuff then. Yeah. <laughs> the safer, more more important things. <laughs> well, let's talk about the law versus the law. Mm-hmm. I think that's how we decided to say it to make it work. Um, sorry, I got distracted. You highlighted something. <laughs> oh, sorry. Yeah, we're in the same document. I forgot. <laughs> I was like, that's the, that is the document equivalent of me just tapping my foot like an ADHD weirdo. I'm, a, I'm sorry. <laughs> no, no, it's fine. It just distracted me for a second. I was flash, like, why is that flash, flash, What have I done? <laughs> right, so the law versus the law. Mm, the law. Is that how we're going with it? The law. To differentiate like it in, in the title. Law. Law. Um, <laughs> The big kind of dichotomy of this book, like an overarching theme, is what's the difference between what's best for and war pork and what's morally right and good. Mm-hmm. And then within that, you have this kind of inner turmoil of vimes of what's right and good policing. Like, when is he a policeman? When is he ank more pork? And when is he motivated by emotion, specifically anger? Like, he's a very yeah. ang- angry person. And we get one final repeat of the motif that's been running through the book. This is ank more pork cutting the top of his boiled egg and here in this section we have this is ank morpork trudging through the snow yes and he's become quite cynical and bitter about his ambassadorial power because yes he's still referencing he's representing ank morpork but he's still trudging through the snow in his underwear and he wants a boiled egg and he wants a boiled egg he deserves a boiled egg does deserve a boiled egg or some or some fried sausages which i think he gets that's nice so he's starting from the inside and working our way out and by that i mean starting in vimes's head um, a terrible, with... a terrible place to start <laughs> when you. <laughs> Let's start from the very emotion, <laughs> and you st- you see this rage building up, and I uh, we've seen this before with Vimes. I went, I think one of the biggest moments is back in Men at Arms when he's holding the the gun, and he has to talk himself out of using it. Mm. Um, but I think it's kind of faded into the background, and it's become a big character beat for him again here, where he's you know the wolves are attacking him. And a, a deeper voice, Red and Raw, said, kill them all. Yeah. Um, and there's a moment you highlighted. Uh, he's building this rage up against them. And it's when Carrot comes to save him. Mm. And Wolves, Vimes hesitates when the wolf sounds human and says, please. And then, of course, it jumps and Carrot runs it through with a spear. Yeah. And it's Carrot, Carrot striking the blow that Vimes... Mm. And I think there's a difference. Carrot is very comfortable in who he is, even if we don't know who that is. Whereas Vimes is constantly kind of at war with himself and doubting himself. And that's why he hesitates and Carrot can strike that blow that does need to be struck. It's the same with the gun at Men at Arms, right? Yeah. Carrot made the decision for Vimes, which was to not take the shot in that case. But he he He, takes and he threw away his shot. So I'm Right, right back at you. I know you cool. enjoyed the Hamilton. <laughs> <laughs> All right, Matt Berry. <laughs> but you keep getting these really mm. good parallels of of Vimes getting these full rage filled moments, and then almost immediately later, someone else almost showing him how to behave. Like he gets into yeah. this full rage over Sybil, where he threatens Tantony, and it says in a monotone as threatening as a spear, which is a gorgeous simile. Mm. Yeah, he really is. He, he's he sprinkled in a lot more of the nice ones than the um, than the skewering similes in this one, didn't he? He's, yes, he he's really gone, does. Oh, it's such a beautiful landscape. I'm going to have to do some real serious metaphoring. Uh, but then like a page later, you get Vimes kind of demonstrating what it is to follow orders and not follow orders when he tells Detritus yeah. to shoot Tantony and Detritus does the 
yeah, I'm not that stupid. Yeah, you nah. can shove that order up your ass. <laughs> Absolutely. That moment, actually, and the moment where Carrot rescues him are both mm. very, very clever diffusions of that tension as well, I think. So the, yeah. this, this build up of anger and like frustration and that and then the the moment of liminal oh when he didn't know what to do with the the pleading wolf yeah and then just diffused by someone else coming in and so it's it's, it's, it's carrot being fucking hero it's carrot being capable of being black and white because I'd say that's one of carrot's bigger mm. actually shown character flaws as opposed to the unknown of what's in his head is that he is very black and white in his thinking and sometimes has to be corrected on it. You know, we saw Angua explaining to him and she, he only had to be told once, you know, we have a second pronoun here and ain't more pork and we're going to use it, aren't we? Yes. <laughs> the, um, I don't know if it's because it's as funny as I thought it was or because it's the diffusion of tension, but that whole bit where Carrots just turned up made me properly laugh out loud and I was reading in the break room at work. Gavin's people, eh? Well, that's good. That's very good. I'm pleased about that. Well done, Gavin. Now, who the hell is Gavin? <laughs> there's something in Vimes' hysteria. <laughs> yeah. And like I said earlier, there's something about the sleep-deprived hysteria that makes it really funny. Well done, Gavin. <laughs> fuck is Gavin? It's almost like Young One's hysteria. <laughs> it's like Rick Mail. Yes. <laughs> oh, oh just, no. Sorry, I'll let you get back on the anger track. But that, <laughs> there's just there's a lot of really good moments. There's this moment where Angua calls him out for being calm and cool when Carrot's hurt. And that's something mm. I think Vimes has kind of learned from Carrot is mm. when to deploy the personal isn't the same as important. Yes. That Angua reminds him of, you know, a few pages later. Mm. And then later on when, when Wolfgang re... re re-emerges it's the line you mentioned when uh sybil's expression was the unquestioning assumption he could do something yeah um and you know he's there's this line about it had been a, you know there was this real world and a real future in front of him suddenly the dark was back spattered with red rage oh uh, yeah I had, yeah that's one of my highlights mm. yeah and this idea that he can't give in to the beast because wolfgang's better at it yeah the, the he, oh sorry his a sooner or later his brain would kick in and that would kill him. Yeah. The bit still during the chase, this end bit of hysteria. I just realised actually kind of parallels the geezers he's next to. Because I was just about to read the, the he roared, there were no words there, it was a sound from before words. But it's a little bit before that. He goes, thought more or less stopped when his fingers closed. Whatever replaced it in the pathways of his brain was gushing up from somewhere else, thousands of years old. And he's just standing on the geezer. Ah, that's a really metaphorical parallel. parallel. Hmm. I like that. But where this kind of culminates for for Vimes and Mm. takes us out into the bigger picture is when he takes down Wolfgang and he shows his badge and tells him he's armed and says it twice and tries to arrest him and asks if he's resisting arrest. And he has Tantony as a witness that he is doing everything by the book. And then he throws the flare, knowing that will kill him. Yeah. And the line at the end of that is, um, there were lots of things he could say. Son of a bitch. Laugh this one off. He might have said fetch. But he didn't because he know if he had said any of those things, then he'd have known that what he had just done was murder. Yeah. It's not quite the same thing, but it gives almost like a subversion of the trope where the hero always has to give the, the antagonist a chance. Yeah. Like Simba ask I've gone straight for the Lion King. Like Simba asking Scar to to come to just up, leave. To yeah. yeah, to to come up and he has to drop him into has to drop him into the fire instead because he jumps up, tries to kill him. I don't know. I don't remember. Yeah. But that trope anyway, that's in a lot of things, especially in kids' movies, the 
the villain has to die, but the hero has to try to save him. And this is almost like a cursory version of that from Vimes. And it's a, he is killing him, not letting him. him. Yeah. When he's dealing with it afterwards, talking to Tantony, it's like, now maybe you could say I could did it wrong or I could have handled it differently. And I might say that myself. Mm. And to him, like as an aside, not out loud, he says, in the middle of night, he added to himself, after I've woken up seeing those mad eyes. He must have a nice collection of mad eyes to go through in his nightmares. That's a hell of a lineup, isn't it? Let's get Vimes therapy. <laughs> Crowdfunding for Vimes and therapy. <laughs> get Vimes on better help. Oh, God. What do you think an Ant Warpork therapist is going to be like, though? Zombie. <laughs> Ant Warpork therapy sessions. That's a depressing headcanon, but I'm up for it. <laughs> Margaret's tried it a couple of times. Nanny Og doesn't believe in therapy, but does does believe in telling someone to jolly well cheer up and giving them a drink. Yeah. <laughs> anyway, but this takes us out into the bigger picture of trying to do things by the book. And, mm. you know, Angus, you know, Vines is kind of being stopped with. There isn't the law here. We only stop doing trial by content because lawyers are nastier. <laughs> yes. And of course, again, it's not true if you take the dwarves into account where the law is so built in. It's a religion. Yeah. Yeah. And... You know, Vimes keeps suddenly recognising he's got this advantage of technically being on Ankh-Morpork soil, which, side note, for some reason, whenever I read that, like, you're on a different country's soil if you're in the embassy. I know it's not what they do, but I imagine that they, like, dig up the foundations and ship in some soil and kind of spread it out. Oh, uh, like uh, like sailors used to do to ward off scurvy. <laughs> yeah, like when Dracula, like, needed to bring soil oh, yeah, from yeah, his yeah. home country to sleep in. I know that's not how embassies are built, but, like, in my mind. I think that's how they should be built. Yeah, I, feel I think like, that would be a good bit of symbolism, and right, they should have done that. that. And Vimes has to have this pointed out to him because, again, he's been stuck in this weird moral quandary of, as I said, like what's good policing, what's morally right, and he's moved on. He's progressed a lot from. I, I think you pointed out when we did Guards Guards, there was a very sort of problematic moment where Carrots basically sent in to beat up a bunch oh, yeah. of palace guards, and it was very like police brutality. <laughs> And so I feel like we've learned from it here and we've very much developed as, not us personally, but like in the books. They very <laughs> I hardly much... ever engage in police brutality anymore. <laughs> Only on the weekends. They took away so my badge. <laughs> it's funny because in my headcanon, I stole a policeman's badge and then engaging in police Just brutality with... against the police. Oh, okay. Yeah, no, that's better. I like that. You shouldn't give that up. Um, kids, don't beat up policemen. <laughs> For your own safety, don't smoke, don't beat up policemen. Both of them will make you look cool, but it's bad for you. Yeah. (laughs) Um, Sorry. (laughs) Why can't we finish on time? Vimes, when talking to the Low King, has the conversation about, you know, why didn't Albrecht expose you and take the throne? Because this plot surrounding everything was to put Mm -hmm. Albrecht on the throne. But it wasn't Albrecht's plot, and this is what the king points out: is you're labouring under a misapprehension. You think because he dislikes Ankh Morpork, he's a bad dwarf, but mm. he's not. He's honest and honourable, and that's something Vimes needed pointed out to him. That was a gorgeous bit of cro- bit of cross party cooperation as well. You never see that on Round World. No, the dwarves showing off as better than humans in this. I think very much so. But Vimes is but Vimes is very trapped in this moment of the big picture versus the little picture. And Vimes knew he was a little picture man. And he, you know, he looked for the crimes. That was it. And he knew the difference between big and little crimes. And he's not sort of sure which one has taken place here. Mm. And he's sort of frustrated, you know, Deal get a few days because she's been naughty. And he's frustrated that 
because she thought she was committing a much bigger crime. Yes. And that that won't be the response to it. And I think it's really powerful in this book to make Vimes have to confront the fact that he is not... He's always known he's not the most powerful. He's he's gained power like within Atmore because these books have gone on. But knowing really that he isn't always right and neither is Ankh Morpork. Mm. And that maybe there are times where he has to, because the thing of Jingo is that he doesn't keep his head down. He goes and arrests the battlefield. Yeah. Whereas here he does kind of have to put his head down and accept a couple of things. Yes. Because he, he recognizes he's out of his jurisdiction and it's a really interesting, I, ha- I know we hate saying this, but journey. I think we love saying that, let's be honest. We've come full circle on a journey of thoughts. Fuck. <laughs> no, I hate it again. It's fine. Carry on. I ruined it for myself. And what brings Vimes finally to being comfortable with his place and everything that's happened is the moment of the coronation. Mm. And it's when the king sits on the scone and he's sort of half expecting it to explode or something, but he knows it's not fake. But in the roaring air, he knew that it was for all who needed to believe, and in a belief so strong that truth was not the same as fact. He knew that for now and yesterday and tomorrow, both the thing and the whole of the thing. Which brings us back around to this power of the belief thing. And Vimes accepting it. it. (laughs) I did it! Fucking did it. Said I was going to do it, and I did it. Follow through. Well done. And I'm going to ruin it. Because I believed in you. I'm going to ruin it by tacking one more bit onto Ah, the end. Ah, you fuck. What? It's just because I, I, this is the first time I've spotted this parallel and I love it. And it's the moment where the king shakes hands with Cherry and with Detritus. Mm. And um, the, the Vimes thinking on these ha- handshakes as symbols. You couldn't try for the big stuff, but you might have made the world a better place somehow mm. with these moments. And when the king shakes Detritus's hand, and Vimes says, well, that one will be heard all around the world, even in Moorpork. And it's like a political version of the wolf's howl. Ooh, the whisper traveling for miles. Yeah. Yes. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Ooh. Ooh, wolf's howl, but handshake. Yes, very good. Yes. All right. No, that is good. Okay. I have, what, I have one part that I want to ask. It's very this book, mm-hmm. which is, so they've reopened the silver mines. Mm-hmm. What are your thoughts on that? Because that seems so hostile to me. It's not a like peacemaking move. It's a introducing guns into the equation move. It's a it's a mutually assured destruction, not a peace disarmament thing. I feel like there has been a consistent power imbalance where the wolves have had a surprising amount of power. Mm-hmm. And this is an escalation, but I feel it's also addressing a power imbalance with everything on the same level. Mm-hmm. It's yes, you have teeth and claws, and now we have something to prevent the teeth and claws. So you think they were kind of strong arms in that original diet of bugs to in, yes. into a poor position? Yeah. Mm-hmm. And I feel like what Pratchett is trying to do is acknowledge that that balance is being redre- redressed yes. and the dwarves will not be treated as subhuman compared to the werewolves anymore. Okay. I'm not saying I'm actually pro-escalating armaments until we end up with nuclear deterrence. No, but you can see why Reese would do that. I, yeah, but I, I understand it. Yes, I'm not saying that Pratchett would necessarily agree with that either, but it's an interesting move from the Dwarves' perspective, being entirely yeah. in-universe in here in our judgments. It's a, yeah. In-universe, I can kind of respect the decision. Mm. Okay. I, 
I respect the decision. I'm not sure it's the right one because I'm not sure I want to antagonize all the vampires and that as well. But does Silver antagonize the vampires though? Does it not? No, I think we'll, we're, Silver's just anti werewolf. Oh, oh, what was it they banned for the vampires? Uh, garlic or some shit? Yeah, it's so like this is specifically to to beat down the werewolves. Then that's an inter- yeah, that brings a new sp- interesting spin on it, doesn't it? Yeah, I would say morally ambiguous, but uh, very understandable, especially after. But we like a grey area. That's what like vines is good at. Not so much carrot. Mm. Anyway, I'm sorry I talked so long that I've sort of overstepped your talking point, though. Well, no, it's because I kept joining in. <laughs> How dare Which is you? like the point of these talking points, really. I know sometimes we just get so into our research, it turns into little mini PowerPoints, but I think that worked quite well. Um, so yeah, obscure reference, Spaniel, to bring it back to the yes. light-hearted, though slightly sticky, uh, I'm going to the Treacle Mines, Ooh. which we've talked about uh, briefly, I think, just as a little thing we liked in a previous book, and uh, oh, look, it's a fun idea of eating treacle from a mine in Angle Fork, whatever. And that's why we have Treacle Mine Road. Yes. Um, but the, the treacle mines of Ankh-Morpork are long exhausted, but here in... in uh, Schmaltzberg. Schmaltzberg, thank you. There's sugar cane that got crushed by the elephant or whatever mm-hmm. happened. The allegory. Crushed by the allegory. Terrible way to go. Treacle mining on Roundworld is a bit like sending out someone out for stripy paint. Uh, it's a kind of... It's a prank on people's gullibility. So yeah. the... To give listeners of all stripes an idea, the see also list on Wikipedia is cow tipping, drop bear, jackalope, snipe hunt, spaghetti tree, wild haggis. It's along all those lines. You must yes. recognize at least one of those listeners. Um, <laughs> all real. Yeah. <laughs> it's it's referenced in like a lot of literature and things. It's Alice in Wonderland. There's a tree called Well that one of them mentions and Alice is shushed when she doesn't believe it. One of the things mentioned on the wiki page was there was a boarding school that was really mean to all its new boys, but they'd have them stand out every year and wait for the coach that was going to take them to the treacle mine locally. Oh. Um, oh. <laughs> there's a lot of theories as to like why this came about as a thing. Like, could have been a mistake when somebody, some, someone found like a buried bat of treacle or whatever. I think it's just a mean thing people made up, and it's quite funny. Yeah, <laughs> but w- one of the like locally ones I quite like was on. Dartmoor, on the east side of Dartmoor, there are the remains of um, micaceous hematite mines. That's a, like a type of iron oxide. It was used in pigment and ink and things, mm-hmm. which are known locally as treacle mines because the exposed mineral is quite black and glistening. Which is, oh, yeah, so it's quite nice. fun. There are some treacle mines in England. I wonder how the Yank Moorport treacle mine got there in the first place was my little bit of speculation because with the, if the elephant crushed the sugar cane, in the woods, and no one was there to hear it. Uh, <laughs> Did it? What what crushed the Ankh Morpork sugar cane? Maybe it's just a more a gradual thing, like a well, like you oil. know, the, the idea is that the elephant falling split the continents and things as well. So I think somewhere in the continent shifting, maybe that would have. Ah, uh, yeah, yeah, like a yeah. some geological nonsense, or maybe that's where the trunk fell or something. Yeah, because there is, as uh, patrons can see from my lovely map behind me, Ankh Morpork is right on the southern tip, sort of around the. Oh, it looked very weather weather person there for a second <laughs> as you can see here we, we're, we're expecting falling elephants <laughs> with a chance of wolves <laughs> don't go outside <laughs> stay in remain indoors <laughs> thank you i can't remember what it fucking was thank well you. it that just was became a, lovely... a reality for a bit didn't it <laughs> actually yeah like uh as soon as the lockdown started rule of three which is that comedy podcast i mentioned mm. 
immediately did an episode on the Remain Indoors sketch. Yeah, that's how you got me into that comedy podcast. You're like, come on, yeah. you're cool. Just, gotta listen to this one. Um, yeah. Oh, and yeah, Power of Belief, because uh, the, the idea, treacle mines in uh, maybe exist because people want them to. I had it I had it written in better and it made more sense, but I skipped it. But, you know, I tried. You're there. <laughs> they exist the way wild haggis, jackalopes and tartan paint exist. Exactly, yes. People want to believe in them. And so somewhere they exist. Isn't I want to believe a thing from the X-Files? Yes, I've got it on a poster. Yeah. <laughs> it's like, I've seen that on a poster in someone I know's house. <laughs> It was you. Good. Okay. I feel like that's definitely not everything we could say about the book, The Fifth Elephant, but also this is going to be a two-hour episode. Um, We will be back. Uh, Let me check the calendar. Because all of our timing's got a bit out of whack. Um, I'm going to say we will be back on the 11th of July. That sounds right. That's in eight. That's ages. Oh no, it's not because this doesn't come out till Monday. Yeah, no, that's right. Yeah, yeah. We had to move everything back. Yeah, yeah, it was yeah. On holiday, it was a whole thing. So we will be back on the eleventh of July okay. with part one of our discussion of the truth, and then we'll have like a reset over August, and then from September, we'll and be then we'll get again. back to normal yeah. again. Yeah. <laughs> so yeah, we'll be back with the truth on the eleventh of July, which is Francine's birthday month. Yes, and we'll be there so with expect- the truth, the whole truth, and knowing us quite a lot of stuff. Other than the other truth. Other than the truth, yeah. yeah. <laughs> uh, so I expect listeners to be really nice next month and send Francine lots of lovely happy birthday messages. Just so I look awkward. Yeah. Yeah, I love it. Yeah. <laughs> I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to read them all out to you like on CBBC where oh they used to do God. those birthday things. <laughs> I forgot about those. <laughs> oh my God, listeners, send me birthday messages for Francine oh, so I can do that. What's that fucking local Devon program that Jack's always on about with like the silent rabbit that did all of that do you remember he's yes, always on but... about that and you said i'm gonna have to ask jack this will be in follow-up listeners sorry <laughs> there's a Devonians, weird plymouth birthday rabbit <laughs> De- devon birthday rabbit yeah um hangs out with the jackalope the wild haggis and the tartan paint right until the 11th of july dear listeners until in the meantime you can you can follow us on Instagram at the True Shall Make You Fret, on Twitter at Make You Fret Bod, on Facebook at the True Shall Make You Fret. Join our subreddit subreddit community. Fuck, I was doing so well. R slash TTSMYF. You can email us your thoughts, queries, castles, snacks, and wolves and albatrosses. The True Shall Make You Snuck a wolf in there. <laughs> snuck a wolf in. The True Shall Make You Fret Pod at gmail.com. And if you'd like to support us financially, go to patreon.com forward slash the True Shall Make You Fret. You can exchange your hard-earned pennies for some bonus nonsense including an upcoming rabbit hole about uh pop culture and werewolves and folklore and all that sort of nonsense i should say we mentioned it a bit more than usual during this episode and that's not like a new direction of our marketing it just came up like don't worry yeah I'm yeah not we're gonna, not gonna, we're like, not gonna be obnoxious this. yeah, yeah. <laughs> this podcast will always be free at the point of use <laughs> free at the point of use <laughs> And if you join our castles and snacks tier, though, there is a recipe coming out next week for a like, mushroom pizza thing. Nice. Oh, that one you were craving. Kind of, but I'm also going to do the recipe for the brown butter confit garlic with creme fraiche. I tried that. It was, oh, I didn't have creme fraiche, but I did have the confit garlic. It was nice. Yep. So, yeah, so look forward to that. And until next month, dear listeners, 
I fucking had the page up and then I put the book down. <laughs> wow, what a way to end that book. <laughs> so weird. What do you mean you had the page? It's the last page. Yeah, but there's like some adverts and oh, stuff okay. in the back. And the book's falling apart. <laughs> Until next month, dear listeners, wolves never look back, he whispered. Cool. But yeah, I'm sorry that took so long. No, don't it's be. It's not I really think, my fault, was, but... No, it was, it was both of our faults equally, so we can both be sorry. Yeah. I think that was a good episode, even though it's far too long. I I think just release a really long one. Yeah, agreed. We've literally never had a complaint that our episodes have been too long. No. No one has ever moaned about And we put out a couple of long ones. It uh-huh. could just be because we react so poorly to criticism. Yeah, possibly. <laughs> Whatever. They're not going to moan, then do it.